The following audio is from a sermon series entitled, The Revelation of Jesus Christ. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord. From the book of Revelation, chapter 14. Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as firstfruits for God and the Lamb. And in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead, with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Another angel, a second, followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, she who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. These worshipers of the beast and its image and whoever receives the mark of its name. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the spirit, that they may rest from their labors for their deeds follow them. Then I looked and behold a white cloud and seated on the cloud, one like a son of man with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, put in your sickle and reap for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, the angel who has authority over the fire, And he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. This is the word of the Lord. Well, my name is Justin, and I am uh, one of the pastors here, the founding pastor of Sacred City, if you're just joining us. And we 
welcome you this morning. Before we get into our sermon, and there's pretty intense and heavy stuff to get into this morning, I have a quick but important announcement for you regarding our upcoming church membership process. Starting on February 10th, we are offering our three-week on-ramp into church membership. We only do this twice a year, uh, coming up in February and then later in August. These three weeks of training are all taught by our elders, and they're meant to help you understand the purpose of church membership, the DNA of our church, our philosophy of ministry, our theology, and our vision as a church. It's a great opportunity, probably one of the best opportunities, for you to go deeper into understanding the gospel. And it's also going to give you an opportunity to ask the elders any questions that you have about our church. Now, some churches don't offer church membership. Uh, some churches offer church membership merely as a formality. You just sign a form and you're a member. Um, why do we think it's so important that we ask all of our members to attend three classes and even do some homework uh, online? Well, for several reasons. First, church membership is biblically commanded. Every Christian should be a member of a local body of believers as, quote, a member, a member of the body of Christ. Not just an attender, but a committed, contributing, faithful member of a local church. Being a member of a church is integral to your discipleship. Now listen, let me use an analogy. It's not perfect, but can you imagine a person trying to play football alone? Right? With no team, with no coach. In the same way, Christianity is meant to be, it is a team sport. We are saved into a team, a family. And we are meant to be living as a committed member of that family. And just as a coach leads a football team to accomplish its mission, the church is meant to be led by biblically qualified elders and pastors to accomplish the mission of God in our city. It means you need a coach. If you're a Christian, you need a coach and you need a team to effectively live out the, the identities that you've been given by God. Right? To be a Christian, you need both of these things. So in this analogy, church membership is where you come in and you join the team. You get to hear from all the coaches you get to evaluate the way that we go about accomplishing the mission of God to make disciples and plant churches and renew the city. And then at the end of it, you get to make a choice whether or not you want to be on mission with us. So if you are a Christian and you've been baptized, the ne this next membership class is for you. If you're not a member, this next membership class is for you. This is how it should look. Put your faith in Jesus Christ, get baptized, Become a member. That's what it should look like. Step one, step two, step three, and we've got some other steps down the road, but that's the third step for you. So if you, you are a Christian, you have been baptized, come on out to this church membership process starting February 10th and learn more about a church, our church. And uh, the reason, one of the reasons we're, we put an emphasis on this is because the work that God has called us to do in our city cannot be accomplished without people making the commitment to join us in community and on mission. I, that, that's why. We want to see 
um, God change our city. We want to see churches planted and more missional communities spread through our city and more people become faithful followers of Jesus Christ. And for us to do that well, we need, we need members, right? And members, you need coaches. That's the elders, all right? So I hope you do that. You'll be hearing a little bit more about it February 10th. With all that said, let me pray, and then we can jump into our text this morning. Father, I thank you for giving us your word. We take it for granted far too often. We assume so many things to be true, and when we read your word, it arrests our attention, and it confronts us abruptly many times. We think things about you that aren't true. We think things about Jesus that aren't true. We think things about ourselves that aren't true. And your word is the divine corrective. Your word is what straightens us out. And this morning, your word is a sharp corrective. And I pray that you would help me preach it with boldness, but with clarity and humility that I am not um, capable of doing justice to this great text. And uh, Father, I tremble before it. And so I ask that you would think through my mind and you would speak through my vocal cords that it would be all of you and none of me and that you would give the people ears to hear your word this morning, that we wouldn't just be disengaged, but we would be interacting with you, with the Spirit, with your word, um, that this would be a conversation with God through his word this morning. I pray all of this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. Well, the scripture we have read this morning is a study in contrasts. It swings from the heart-thumping worship of God by the redeemed that would silence the roar of Niagara Falls to the gruesome scene of the eternal torment of those who worship Satan. It goes from the heights of heaven to the depths of hell on earth. Revelation 14 is a chapter full of startling juxtaposition. And before we get too far in it this morning, let me begin by saying this. It is tempting for us to hear the scripture that Lupe read for us this morning and, and, and to think, man, Jesus with a sickle? And blood flowing through the streets? That doesn't sound like the Jesus I know. Sometimes it's hard to reconcile an image of Jesus on the cross, dying for his enemies with the Jesus of Revelation 14, who has a sickle like the grim reaper in his hands, executing so many people that the blood runs through the streets as high as a horse's bridle. That, that means its head, basically four and a half feet tall. Well, first let me remind you that this imagery from Revelation is symbolic. Now, that's true. But don't dismiss it. Because it's symbolic, don't go, oh, it's just symbolic. <laughs> the problem with doing that is it's a symbol or a sign for something. And do you think it's a sign for a birthday party? Right? It's a sign for something horrible. Right? It's clear that whatever it's a sign or a symbol for is absolutely terrible. 
When Jesus returns, he's coming as judge, jury, and executioner. And he will execute his judgment with perfect, holy, eternal justice. Every wrong will be made right. That's what it's going to take to heal the world. So how do we reconcile this image of Jesus as executioner with the image of Jesus as savior? Um, I doubt our kids are learning about Jesus as executioner this morning, right? All right, kids, everybody, we're making our craft today. It's a sickle. What's a sickle? Well, ask your parents about that, right? Our kids, and most of the time when we're telling our kids the stories, we're telling our kids the stories about Jesus dying on the cross for his enemies. We, we might skim over what Jesus is going to do in Revelation 14 when he comes back again. Well, what do we do? How do we reconcile these two images? Well, honestly, what we need to do is go back to the Gospels, and reacquaint ourselves with the real Jesus. Because what we see in Revelation 14 is actually the direct fulfillment of the words of Jesus in Matthew 13. So if you have your Bibles, first, we're going to go to Matthew 13 this morning. I'm going to go through it really quickly. Matthew 13, verses 24 through 30. This is called the parable, and my, my header in my Bible calls this the parable of the weeds. Verse 24. He put another parable, just as Jesus teaching, he put another parable before the crowds saying this, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. So he sowed some weed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servants said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, no, lest in gathering the weeds you root up, you root up the wheat along with them. Verse 30, let both grow together until the harvest. And at the harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned. But gather the wheat into my barn. Now go to verse 36. Then Jesus left the crowds and went into the house. And his disciples came to him saying, explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. He answered, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. That's Jesus. The field is the world. And the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age. The reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, 
so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. I want, to see, I want us to see seven quick things from this text. One, there are two seeds. Or two, there's two seeds and there's two seed sowers in this parable. The seed sower, so the farmer who goes out and he's sowing seed in the, in, the, in the field, there's two sowers, Jesus and the devil, okay? Secondly, the seeds represent people. Good seeds are being sown by Jesus and they represent those who trust in Christ as Savior. And the bad seed are the ones sown by the devil and those are the ones who do not trust Christ as Savior, Three, the field is the world. That means in the world at all times, there are ultimately only two types of people. There's only two types of seed. Those who look to Christ for salvation and those who don't. Fourth, Jesus says that for a time, this is called common grace. For a time, Jesus is going to let both of these seeds grow together in the world. That time is now. Five, harvest time is the close of the age or the end time or Armageddon day, judgment day. That's what we see happening here in Revelation 14. Jesus says at harvest time, angels will reap the harvest. Jesus says it's at the harvest where he will separate the wheat from the weeds. The sons and daughters of his kingdom from, quote, the causes of sin and all lawbreakers, those who have rejected Jesus and choose to follow their own way. Sixth, Jesus says that this day will be, quote, an awful day where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Seventh, after that awful day, then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. Now, I went through that really fast. What does that mean for you and me? One, there, there are two crops in the world right now. These two crops represent two divergent kingdoms. The kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. These two kingdoms are at war with each other. Now think about it. When you sow seeds, so the, the sower sowed good seed and then the enemy came and sowed bad seed, those seeds are fighting they're vying for nutrients. They're vying for space, right? They're vying for sunlight. They're vying for water. They're in competition with one another. That's the nature of our world. Now, the second thing I want us to see, this is the, this is the most important thing I can ask you today. Do you know what kingdom you belong to? Do you know what seed you are right now? If you don't or if you're not sure, I hope to help you answer that today. So this Matthew 13, what's going on, is kind of the controlling metaphor to understand what's going on in Revelation 14. 
Because what Jesus prophesied and told the parable of in Matthew 13, it's actually happening in real life in Revelation 14. So let's go to Revelation 14. So Matthew 13 gives us the context to understanding this chapter. The reason there is such a stark juxtaposition is because in Revelation 14, boom, it's the end of the day. It's the end of the age. Jesus says, I'm waiting to the end of the age to harvest. Revelation 14 shows up and Jesus says, now's time for harvest. The harvest is fully ripe and the wheat and the weeds are fully grown. What, is, what does that mean? Listen, the time of repentance, Revelation 14 is kind of right now, but it's also in the future. And you've got to get this. What we're reading in Revelation 14, there's no more opportunity for repentance. It's harvest time now. Christ steps up and it's judgment day. It's judgment day. The time of repentance, the times of decision, they're all in the rear view mirror now for the people. Scripture tells us that today is the day of salvation, that now is the appointed time for you to believe. So we're to never put off until tomorrow because you never know if tomorrow will come, nor will you know what tomorrow will bring. The time for repentance and change is now. Revelation 14 shows us the reality of the harvest. And at the time of the harvest, everything is black and white. The wheat, you've got weeds and you've got wheat. You've got good and bad. You've got righteous. You've got unrighteous. You've got holy. You've got unholy. You've got the seeds of God and the seeds of Satan. Everything is black and white. The mushy middle is gone. The spectrum of gray that we all live in is gone. And a person's experience of Jesus in, in the harvest time is totally dependent upon what kingdom they belong to and what type of person they are. If they are in God's kingdom, it is the greatest day of their life, full of worship and enjoyment, but if they're of the kingdom of the beast, it's the worst day of their life. Torment and judgment. Now, this topic, this concept, this idea, this part of our story is anathema to our culture. If you are in here today and you are not a believer, this is going to offend your sensibilities. We share it out of love. We share it because it's reality. I'm not that great of a fan of gravity, but it is what it is. It's reality, right? This is reality. We just are getting kind of the spiritual world's getting pulled back. The curtain of the spiritual world's getting pulled back and we're getting to get a glimpse of reality this morning. So I ask for you for a moment, just, just for the next half hour that you suspend your disbelief and just say, I wonder if it could be true. I ask that you would do that for your good this morning. Now, what, what this, what's going on here, this juxtaposition, this white, light and dark, it was prophesied again in Psalm 1825. This is the scripture. With the merciful, you show yourself merciful. 
with the blameless man, you show yourself blameless. With the purified, you show yourself pure. But with the crooked, you seem torturous. For you save a humble people, but the haughty eyes you bring down. For it is you who light my lamp. The Lord, my God, lightens my darkness. For by you, I love David when he says this, for by you I can run against a troop. And by my God, I can leap over a wall. David did CrossFit. This God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. Listen to what David says. So he says, to the righteous, God seems righteous. To the wicked, he seems torturous. Listen to this. God is a shield for all who take refuge in him. We see that shield in Revelation 14. For those who are in Christ, they are shielded from his wrath. Now let's get in our text. We're going to jump through. We got quite a ways to work through. We got, oh, I got plenty of time. Doing good this morning. Chapter 14, verse 1. Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb. Now, again, this is a juxtaposition. Last week, the beast stood up, if you remember. The beast, the Antichrist, the false prophet, they stood up and they tried to exert their power and their influence over the world and try to get people away from worshiping God to worship Satan, right? Well, now, <laughs> sorry, as I'm preaching, I just heard, would the real Slim Shady please stand up? That's what I heard right there, Okay. <laughs> In my mind. That wasn't from the Holy Spirit, but that's what I heard. Because in this moment, in this moment, would the real God please stand up? That's what's happening. Okay? And the lamb stands up. All right? The lamb, sta the lamb stands up, look, on Mount Zion. What is Mount Zion? Mount Zion is the metaphor, the figurative, it means heaven. It means God's abode. Okay? God's place. And so here we have Jesus. What's he been doing? Do you remember? He's been around the throne. He's been sitting on the throne. And now we have Jesus stand up. Oh, Jesus stands up and something is about to happen. And with him, 144,000. Now, we've already heard this number. Numbers mean a lot of things in Revelation. They're symbolic. The number 12 is symbolic, the 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 apostles, 12 times 12, that's where you get 144, times it by 1,000, 144,000, what does that mean? It means all of God's people, all of the redeemed, that's what it means. Every Christian who's put their faith in Jesus Christ, all right, in heaven, that's what it means. Look, who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. No matter how many times I say this, we st it still kind of flies over our head. Okay, there are, there are not, listen, if, if you take this literal, then there are going to be a lot of like Christian tattoo artists and then atheist tattoo artists in the, in the, in the last days, because everybody's going to need a tattoo, right? All right, which one do you want? The beast or God, right? That's not what's happening. All right. We're called to write God's word on our heart. We're trying to bind it to our head. So this means that you're, by taking the mark of the beast, it means you're worshiping Satan and the ways of the world. By taking the mark of God, it means you've been sealed by the Holy Spirit and you've put your faith in Jesus Christ. It's a metaphor, okay? It's a metaphor, all right? Keep, keep going. So all the ones who put their faith in Christ 
And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. See, that's where I got the Niagara Falls analogy. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. It was a special song. See, no one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth, except for the Christians. It is these who have not defiled themselves. Now, what's going on here? First off, Jesus is about to make his move. He's about, he stands up in heaven and this signifies the time where, all right, the time of waiting for the weeds and the, and the wheat to grow together, it's over. Jesus looks at the earth and he says, it's harvest time. And he steps up and now he, what he, you're gonna see, he grabs his sickle and he says, now it's time to harvest the earth. Now it's time to bring justice on the earth and separate the wheat from the weeds and set up the eternal kingdom of God. And when he stands up, heaven erupts. Heaven goes crazy. The redeemed of the Lord let loose a cacophony of praise. It's so loud. It sounds like the roaring of many waters. It sounds like thunder. Now, these are the ones from last week that we saw whose names had been written in the Lamb's book of life before the foundation of the world. They are the seed that have been given to the sower, Jesus, the good seed. And John gives us a few, here we go, of their qualities. You see from our text right here, it says this. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. Now, that's kind of confusing. What it means is they are sexually pure. But the sexual purity is, again, really just a symbol of them not following the beast. In the Old Testament, God called idolatry spiritual adultery. When a person worshipped another god, he called it whoredom. He would, when they would worship their idols, he would say, you're whoring yourself out to other gods. Read Hosea. You'll be shocked. When a person worshiped another god, that was spiritual immorality. And that is what God is talking about here. We know that because in verse 8, their sexual purity, these, the Christian sexual purity is contrasted against Babylon's sexual immorality. And Babylon is just basically a code word for the world's way of doing things, the world's system. So these people, these Christians here, are devoted to Jesus and they do not worship the beast. Next, well, we see it why they don't re worship the beast. They have, these have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and the Lamb. All right? So they've been, they've been harvested from the earth for God, to worship God in heaven. Verse 5, and in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. What do we see here? We see three things. One, we see these Christians 
follow Jesus, right? These who follow the lamb wherever he goes. What does that mean? These Christians that are in heaven obey Jesus. They make Jesus the center of their life and schedule. Jesus isn't just their savior. He's their leader. He's their shepherd. He's their Lord. And third, we see they they don't lie. More than likely, this has to do with lying to get out of being persecuted. Right? The temptation, as it is in China right now, the government in China is persecuting Christians. They want the church to accept um, the government and they want the, and the government it wants to cut out things from the Bible and say, you can say this, you can't say that. And those who say, no, we're not doing that, they're throwing in jail right now. Well, the temptation when you're in that type of persecution is, you know, you've all had it. You've all had this thought. Can't I just lie? Like when the government says, you know, are you worshiping Jesus? Just say no. And then when they leave, go, I repent, Lord. Thank, thank you for that, right? Uh, right, isn't that the right thing to do? No, it's not the right thing to do. God gets glory when we tell the truth and, eat, and then get persecuted because of telling the truth. So these followers of Jesus put him at the center of their life. They refuse to follow Satan and worship anything other than Jesus and they tell the truth, shocker. John John goes on to summarize and say, for they are blameless. And they show that blamelessness by the way they respond to Jesus. When Jesus stands up, they don't go, ah, I'm busy right now, right? There's a lot, I probably, there's, there's probably gonna be a lot of things to do in heaven, okay? A lot of things to occupy our time. But when Jesus stands up, they focus their attention on him. They worship him. Look at verse six and seven. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Now this is an interesting gospel presentation. It reminds me of the one Jonah gave to Nineveh, if you remember that, right? Basically, Jonah walks into Nineveh mad that God's going to give them grace, mad that God wants him to be a prophet to a pagan nation because Jonah himself is uh, controlled by kind of underlying racial racism that he doesn't even really know is there. More than likely, he's not even aware of. He doesn't like the Ninevites and he doesn't want to bring the gospel to them. So basically, he walks into Nineveh. Basically, all he says is, God's going to judge you. Drops the mic and walks out. But what happens is the Holy Spirit moves in and they all repent. They all repent. And he's like, I knew you were going to do that. Jonah gets mad at God. Well, this is similar to what's happening here in the book of Revelation, except the repentance doesn't happen because it's harvest time and the time of repentance is in the past. See, this gospel presentation here is a lot more judgment-centered than grace-centered. It seems like it's. Fear God. Give him glory. It's commands. Because the hour of his judgment has come. 
Worship him who made heaven and earth. He's the creator. Worship him, the sea and the springs of water. Now, this is where we really get to see or start to see that startling juxtaposition in our chapter. There is one eternal gospel. You see the word eternal before that? There's one eternal gospel by which men can be saved. And there's two eternal responses from people. Only two. You can have two responses to the gospel. And by not worshiping Jesus, you are worshiping the beast. There are no innocent bystanders in this war. Look at verse 9. And another angel. Oh, I'm sorry. I, I skipped verse 8. Yeah, I skipped verse 8. Another angel, a second, followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon. That's the world system. The great, she who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality, her idolatry. This is the world system that tries to pull people away from the worship of God to worship ourself, to worship creation, to worship other gods. Verse 9. And another angel... A third followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath. Poured full strength. Poured full strength in the, into the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. And they have no rest, day or night. These worshipers of the beast and its image and whoever receives the mark of its name. Jesus here, when he comes back, is not playing around with his enemies. We see the black and white. There are no innocent bystanders. There are no people who are just confused. There are no people who just don't know. There are no people who just, oops. You are worshiping God, or you are worshiping the world system. You are worshiping the beast. The time of the weeds and the wheat growing together is over. Now it's time, in the words of Jesus, to rid the world of sinners. And these sinners are now in the hands of an angry God to use the phrase Jonathan Edwards used in one of his most famous sermons. Now, how should that affect us? Verse 12 shows us. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints. Those who keep the commandments of God and keep their faith in Jesus. 
seeing God's justice poured out. Yes, it, call, it should cause us to weep. It should cause us great concern. It should bring trepidation to our hearts. But it is meant, we're, we're, we're given this picture to read it right now in the time where the weeds and the wheat are growing together for one major purpose, and that is to motivate us to endure, to keep God's commandments to be dead serious about our walk with Jesus. That we are Christians should be willing to die before giving our worship and devotion to the beast. Verse 13. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. When a Christian dies, they are blessed in the Lord, for, for they rest from their labors, and all of the good things that they have done on this earth follows them into heaven. Jesus says that even when you give a cup of cold water to someone who's looking, you've, Jesus says, you've done it for me. And then when you get to heaven, they're like, when did we give you a cup of cold water? When you did it for the least of these. When you visited those in prison, when you, when you ministered to the sick, when you cooked a meal for somebody in need. When did we do that to you, Jesus, when you did it to the least of these? Here, Jesus is telling him that when a Christian dies, it's a good thing, they're blessed, they enter the divine rest, but also their good deeds follow with them. And listen, that's another reason why these people are singing the way they are. They've made it. They finally found what they're looking for. St. Augustine said, our hearts are restless until they rest in God. In heaven, Christians find that rest. No more anxiety. No more fear. No more unbelief. No more doubt. No more insecurity. No more sickness in your body. No more pain. That's why they're singing in heaven, Christians find what they're looking for. But this chapter is really, it's this juxtaposition, this one eternal gospel, two responses. You've got the song of the redeemed, and then you've got the sickle. Like a 14. Then I looked and behold a white cloud and seated on the cloud, one like a son of man. Jesus' favorite Old Testament term for himself. With a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, put in your sickle and reap. For the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. 
Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, the angel who had authority over the fire, and he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, put in your sickle and gather the clusters. So we got a change of metaphors here. It was the weeds and the wheat. Now we've got a different fruit. We've got grapes. So the angel, or I'm sorry, who had the sharp sickle, put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia, which is about 184 miles. I want you to see a, a, um, a picture of what a winepress is. That's a winepress in ancient Israel. I guess it's a little darker than I thought. I apologize for that. You can see the two people, you would put all the grapes in that big, the big rectangle, you put all the grapes there, and people would literally tread on the grapes. They would, they would walk on, on the grapes, smash it all out, and then there was kind of a filter that the grape juice would flow out of the wine press and into those two collecting pots, and that's how you would collect the wine. <clears throat> and this is the image that Jesus chooses to use um, about his coming judgment. That the crushing of the, of the grapes was a symbol for what Jesus does to those who reject him. And what I want you to see today is that there are only two types of people. Those who embrace Jesus and worship him with their whole heart and those who don't. And if you don't bend your knee now, You'll be crushed like those grapes later. Now, why is that fair? Well, I think it's more than fair. I think it's just. First, we're told in this text to worship God who created heaven and earth. If that's true, if God is God and God is our creator and God is your creator, he's the reason you're here, for you not to worship him is nothing short of eternal cosmic treason. Second, and this is the crux of the matter, is there anyone in here who could say that you have not given your love, given your life, given your affection to something other than God? Is there anyone in here who could say, I've never worshiped anything other than God? <laughs> Is there anyone in here who could say, actually, I've never told a lie. I've never walked away from Jesus and chose to fo follow my own path in life. I can answer that one for you. <laughs> from God's point of view, he says, no one is without sin. No one is perfect. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We all, every single one of us in this room, 
and every single person watching on the internet, we deserve to get crushed in the wine press of God's wrath for our sins against him, period. If God was merely fair, that's what he would do to every human being on this planet. He would destroy us all for sinning against his holiness. But here's the amazing news, and here's what John says is, quote, the eternal gospel. It's the never-ending good news. Did you see in verse 20? It said, And the winepress was trodden outside the city, and blood flowed from the winepress. That's where the wrath of God gets poured out on sinners. The term outside the city. Well, Jesus, the Son of God, the sinless Son of God, was led outside the city, the city of Jerusalem. And it was there outside the city gates on the cross where his lifeblood flowed from his body as he drank the cup of God's undiluted wrath for you and me. See, that is the heart of the gospel. Jesus took your place. And if you put your fingers in, the, in your ears and your hands over your eyes and say, I don't want to hear about the wrath of God. I don't want to hear about a God who's angry. I don't want to hear a God, about a God who's righteous and holy and I can't be in his presence. Then if you do that, you will never understand what that God has done to love you. You will never know the cost that he paid to redeem you, to purchase you. See, it was there outside the city gates where Jesus took your place and he took the wrath of God that you deserve for your many sins and he drank the cup of the wrath of God. It was there when he said, my God, my God, my God, my God, the first time he ever spoke those words because Jesus always said, Father, Abba, Daddy. But there when he became sin on the cross, he felt a disconnect. He felt a distance from God. He was experiencing not the love of the Father, but the wrath of the Father. And he was experiencing it for you in your place. Jesus drank the cup of the wrath of God and he drained it to its dregs. So that when you put your faith in Jesus and you believe the gospel that Jesus took the wrath of God that you deserve, God the Father now, listen, this is what it means that the wrath of God was satisfied on Jesus. doesn't mean that he doesn't have wrath coming. It means that when you put your faith in Jesus, the wrath of God towards you and towards your sin has been satisfied. That means God, if you're in Christ, has no animosity towards you. No anger towards you. His anger has been poured out. His anger has been emptied towards you. His wrath has been satisfied in Jesus. But for those who reject the gospel, the only way by which men can be saved, 
You are spitting on the one who took the wrath of God for you. To reject the gospel is to take the mark of the beast. And I see two ways here as I close. We reject the gospel. One, obviously, outright rejection. No, no thanks. I don't believe that. I think an idea of a wrathful God is primitive. If you really get down into it, I could go on to a whole talk about that. But there is no love without wrath. Wrath is love for the beloved. Wrath is anything that attacks what I love. I'm going to be angry towards that. I'm going to pour my wrath out. If you try to attack my children, you're going to get a beat down from me, right? My wrath is going to be poured out on you because I love my children, right? God loves his holiness. God loves perfection. God loves the world that he's, the, the Eden and what he's recreating and anything that attacks that. Sinners and, and the ones who want to ruin the earth, they're going to be, they're going to experience the wrath of God. So we can say, no thanks, I don't want it. That's to take the mark of the beast. You're basically choosing Babylon over Mount Zion. You're choosing this earth over heaven. Now there's a lot of reasons we do that. We would rather be our own God. We would rather make our own rules. We would rather choose our own way. We would rather, I'm gonna do it my way than actually humble myself and accept God's great offer of salvation, that is your choice. But I beg you, I beg you with tears to reconsider. Fear God and give him glory that he deserves because the hour of God's judgment is coming. Worship him who made heaven and earth. You were made to worship God and you'll never find peace until you do. So that's the first way we reject God is clear, clear cut. We reject him. We don't want anything to do with it. No thanks. Second way, you see over and over in the chapter that those who believe the gospel display a change in their behavior that reflects their internal change. The redeemed follow Jesus. The redeemed are disciples who live in community like Jesus did with his disciples and they follow Jesus on mission like Jesus did. The redeemed keep themselves from sexual immorality. The redeemed keep themselves from worshiping idols. The redeemed Tell the truth. They keep, the redeemed, keep their faith in Jesus while keeping the commandments of God. The most common way for people in our city, we live in a good Midwestern town. We've got, for the most part, good family values. Most of us have pretty solid sense of morality, Right? The way we reject the gospel in our city is we want to be absolved from the wrath of God. We want to be forgiven without actually wanting to worship God with our whole life. 
We want to come to God to get heaven taken care of, but I don't want God messing with my day-to-day life. I don't want God telling me who I should date. I don't want God telling me how I should spend my money. I don't want God telling me how I should perform at work. I don't want God telling me fill in the blank, what I do on Sunday morning or what I do on Wednesday night. I, I read that and I'm like, Shh. if that's true, I don't want to go to hell. I don't want this. So what do I got to do? Oh, pray a prayer. Okay, I'll pray a prayer. <sighs> got that taken care of. Now I can go on and live the rest of my life. No, no, no. There's, there's no tricking God. Right? It doesn't work that way. He sees our heart. Listen, being absolved from the wrath of God is great. It truly is. But if you have really been saved from the wrath of God, that salvation is going to result in you, quote, fearing God and giving him glory in all your life, your home life, your work life, your sex life, your financial life. And all of that is proof that you actually have eternal life inside that you've got the eternal seed the gospel inside that you are good seed that the father has planted and you're going to grow up to a good plant so i said this morning that the most important question you can ask is what kingdom am i a part of what seed am i a part of part of that you can just evaluate your life But with this metaphor, I want us to see two important things. How do you know you're a Christian? The first step is the most important. You've come to realize, I didn't get here by myself. Right? Listen, I have been sown by Jesus. C.S. Lewis famously said that he was the most unreluctant convert in all of England. He's like, I didn't want to be a Christian. God chose him anyways. Saul was killing Christians when God got him. See, the primary reason we respond and choose the Father is because we've been sown by Jesus. You've been acted upon. Listen, that means salvation happened to you, not because of something you did, but you were acted upon outside of yourself. And until you get that, you'll never really understand the gospel. And people who do get that, they're the most joyous people in all the world because they, they know I am a living, breathing, walking, talking miracle from on high that God caused me to be born again, that God sowed me as his own, God chose me as his own child, and I've been adopted in the family of God, not because of anything I've done, but because of his mercy towards me. God did that. He wrote my name in his book from before the foundations of the world, what it said last week. He sealed me with his Holy Spirit. He assured that I was going to hear the gospel, that I was going to have friends bring me to church. He put every person in my life that was meant to make me take a right and take a left and to get me into the here this moment, this morning. God's been doing that. 
I have done nothing to earn or merit his salvation in any way. When I read this text and I look at it and I say, oh, the redeemed tell the truth and oh, the redeemed are faithful unto God and oh, the redeemed keep themselves sexually pure and all oh, those in heaven are blameless. If I start measuring myself, I say, uh-oh. First, how do you know you're a Christian? One, you realize the only reason you're here is because God has been after you. God has sown you. The only reason you're saved, God has sown it. God did it. It's so humbling. And it's so joyful. But secondly, how do you know you're a Christian? You're a seed that's been sown and you grow up as a Christian. You grow up into maturity. You grow up into the image and likeness of Jesus Christ. That's what this chapter's about. The redeemed worship God, and worship is singing, but it's also faith and obedience. We worship God together this morning, and it's great, and we enjoy it, but we worship God all six days of the week through our faith and through our obedience. The redeemed sing, but they also keep themselves from sexual morality. They also follow Jesus wherever he leads them, and the redeemed tell the truth. Now, every one of us are on that spectrum somewhere. I realize that I've been sown from above And when we really get that, oh, yes, it's nothing that I've ever done or ever will do. And there's a negative response that where some people think, oh, so that just doesn't mean that anything I do matters. No, everything you do matters. We've been sown from above, and yet we're called, 2 Peter chapter 1 tells us to make every effort to grow up into godliness. Make every effort to supplement our faith with virtue. We grow up. But the answer to both is the gospel. So here's what's interesting. If you've never put your faith in Jesus Christ, I plead with you this morning, believe the good news. He died for you and took your place on the cross for your sins. He took all the wrath for you. Believe it. Receive salvation. Get into his family. And if you aren't growing in spiritual maturity, if you're not growing up in godliness, if you're not sharing your faith with outsiders, if you're not keeping yourself sexually pure, if you're not telling the truth, if you're not honoring God and following Jesus in your whole life, you're not believing the gospel. Believe the gospel this morning. Believe it. And that's why we come to this meal. We come to this meal to proclaim the Lord's death until he returns. To remind ourselves this morning, I am still, though the wrath of God has been turned away from me, I still have sin in in me that pulls me and draws me away. I still need faith and repentance. I still need the cleansing blood of Christ and the body that was broken for me. 
Father, I thank you for what you have done in and through Jesus, redeeming for yourself a people. Father, I pray that you would work that humility deep in our hearts, but also that you would give us that boldness, that self-control, whatever that, that, that endurance, that stick to Maybe, dare I say, aggression, what, whatever it is that causes us to stay the course, to fight sin, to resist the devil, to stay faithful to you. Yes, we need the Holy Spirit, but there's also this thing in us that has to, we have to choose to do it. We have to make every effort. Father, I pray that you would do both simultaneously through your gospel right now. Humble us and say, it's all grace, it's all God, but also give us the boldness to say, and I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Father, as we come to the meal this morning, it is a meal for sinners. It is a meal for the broken. But the broken who have had the wrath of God diverted on their behalf. So it's a meal only for baptized believers this morning. Pray that we would come and we would worship again the God who saved us from his own wrath. Pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.